Well, as we begin this morning to look into the Word some more, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 9, I'm trying to regroup from microphone here for a second, uh, is I just want to make this connection before we read this text, is that we're going through this series now about what we believe are sort of the essentials of what it means to be the church, to not just see the church as an event we go to or a, or a set of personalities that give us some direction to follow, but actually owning the identity that we have as the children of God, which thus makes us family, that we've not been called into just sort of this uh, one-on-one relationship with God, as good as it is, you know, in our southern religious culture, sometimes we have this hyper-individualism that goes beyond even any other places in our country at times. There's even celebrated country songs, me and God, uh, me and Jesus got our own thing going on. Like we can just do this self-made way of being a disciple. And we actually celebrate that. Like I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to do that my own way without any community and with it, without any people that I partner together to follow Jesus with. That is just not the way of Jesus. And so we're thinking, what does that mean? And we're talking about some essentials here. These things are used in many churches, but we're talking about what they look like in the life of our church. But we're not even so concerned about thinking about it in that category. We're just thinking about what does it look like for each of us to just follow Jesus in the way of Jesus. And it means that one thing we talked about is that we would be together regularly, that we would gather God's design that we would sing together, hear God's word together, but that it would be more than that, that we would get together in one another's homes, that we would have a measure of life that we know is, is not able to live in some sort of like exaggerated communal existence. If you're up for that, go for it. But, but we're busy people with jobs, lives, sports, school, all of these things, but we are called to these, this regular commitment to have relationships with people, and that means we have to get together and be present with one another. And we want to do that with Jesus as the glue that holds us together. But we also are called, as a part of being the church, to grow, to grow up. Being the church is not a call to be a consumer of Christianity, to not say that something, some religious institution called the church now has some goods and services that they need to deliver to me. No, as followers of Jesus, we are all called to grow up and to live a life that follows Jesus, not just merely on a Sunday, but in the stuff of everyday life. And today we're going to talk about the call to go. That is to look outside of ourselves, our own comforts, our own preferences, even our own personalities, and to bring this good news of the kingdom to other people. That's one reason this morning we weren't uh, doing these songs and adding the Spanish language component because we thought that would be cute or somehow make it look like something to try. It's because as we've been living life on mission together out in the city and in our neighborhoods and in our schools, we're finding that there are many people who speak Spanish. Most of the children and students that we connect with, they, they are bilingual, but a lot of the parents cannot speak English. And so when you go and you think, oh, what would it look like to invite them into the life of our church when nothing will resonate with them? Like it, and so we're, we may not do it this way all the time, but we, we want to be willing to discomfort ourselves. I can't speak a lick of Spanish. I wish that I could. But, but to do this so that we can imagine what it's like 
Again, we view our mission much more than people in these seats on Sunday morning. It's just one piece of the bigger pie. But this morning, actually, I could start to imagine what it would be like to invite my friend Edgar. What it would be like to invite people, names, many more I can mention, but I don't want to like, talk about people. Like, I can now imagine them standing here with me. And them not just being asked to adapt to my preferences, but to share in the gospel. And I'm excited about that, whatever that might look like. But we hope, as we do in all of our life as a church, that what we're doing here on Sunday is just shaping what we're going to go do now in our everyday life. Not just how can I sacrifice some comfort for an hour and a half on a Sunday, but now how can I go live in a way that denies myself, takes up my cross, and follows Jesus for the good of others and the glory of God. And our text this morning, I believe, will help us get there. So Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. If you have a Bible, you can read from there, at, or obviously we have it here on the screen. God's Word says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, big and small, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to them, to him, his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for meeting us here today, for inviting us once again to gather not only alone, but as your children together, to be in your presence together, to worship you together, to hear from you together. And we just pray, Father, that we would be gathered here for no other reason than to respond to your word and to be shaped by your word and your spirit. To be reminded again through the word and through the table that it is finished. And that we now have your spirit to be sent out into this world to both declare and display the kingdom of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. And if you guys don't know, there's a new movie out about Harriet Tubman that we watched recently. And I, I grew up hearing about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. But, but seeing this film, and as I always say, I'm not vouching or endorsing any film because you might go like it and say, why did he say that? That was horrible. But in this, in this depiction, and seemed to resound with all that I've ever heard. It was just amazing to see this lady who had this passion for the freedom of her family, 
for the freedom of all who were enslaved. She begun, began this journey with no title, with no plans, and with really no provisions by anyone else, but simply a passion, first off, for her own freedom. But then once she had experienced it, once she had found the way, as it were, she couldn't sit back content just to enjoy her own life. She had to figure out a way that she could get back to where others were and bring them on that journey that led them to being human as they were created by God to be, not someone's property. She had no formal training, at least in this depiction, I trust it. She had God. She had truth. She had conviction. And she had a lot of discouragement coming at her, a lot of risk, and a lot of people who hated her. But even more than the hate and the obstacles that came at her was the love that came from her. So she prayed, she plotted, and she persisted in fighting the enemy that would hold people captive. This African-American, this black woman had those two designations on her identity. Two that in the 1800s in the United States said, you are a, not even a person, first off, not even a full person, but you especially have no possibility of doing anything of any historical significance. She would have been written off and she would have been tempted, as many were, and in contrast to her, tempted to write herself off. Tempted to step back in a, a faux humility, like Moses, who, I, I, without too much irony, became sort of her name, to say before God, who am I? She couldn't read. She had nothing by worldly standards that qualified her for the calling God put on her life. And yet that was enough. She was used by God to see many people set free. And it was so inspiring. But as, as I watched that, and I was thinking about Matthew 9 and into chapter 10, I was just super convicted. I was super convicted about how the heart of Jesus is, is a greater heart than Harriet Tubman had, although great it was, and yet how I can have such little passion to see people set free. Super convicted about where my passions lie. I've got a couple hobbies, and I think hobbies are good. God wants us to enjoy His creation and His world. But do all my passions, investment of resources and time, flow in that direction while people sit in slavery? What moves me to earnest prayer? You know what moves me to earnest prayer? When we have supreme car trouble. 
You don't know why? Because it, it affects my daily life. It affects my finances. It affects my comfort. Sometimes it affects my sense of even shame because I think if I wasn't so dumb, I wouldn't have got myself in this situation. And, I, and I, it creates this internal angst where I call out to God, Help me, Lord! What compels me to what I like to call non-externally driven action? That is, I don't have to some, have somebody kind of poking and prodding me to do it. There are things in my life like that. But is it, is it to see other people come to know the good shepherd who can lead them out of their harassed and helpless state, their bondage to sin, their enslavement to Satan, their seduction by the world. This was the heart of Jesus. He says in Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He has anointed me to go and to proclaim good news of freedom, of liberty. And we are His disciples, and a disciple is nothing more than someone who is to be an apprentice of Jesus. Someone who is to be with Him, to be becoming like Him, and to do what He did. There can be no discipleship, no genuine, true discipleship, if the heart of Jesus is not the primary shaping force upon the hearts that we live with. But no doubt, if you're like me, many of us have written ourselves out of this vision. We've said this part is for other people. We've said, I, I might can do the gather part, I might can do the grow part, but this go part, this part where I lay down my life to be a, a laborer in the harvest, to be someone sent to set the captives free, I'm going to leave that to the varsity Christians. When Jesus makes no categories for those who receive this calling. And so we often treat mission like a project. Or, a, or discipleship. It, it cracks me up in churches, right? Like, we've got our church, and one part of our church is going to be our discipleship focus. That's the whole point of it all. We're going to have a, a mission team and... And again, I know it's all well-meaning. And then the rest is just going to do this other stuff. What other stuff? And we think because we have certain personalities, because the way evangelism, to use that churchy word, has been used, that there's only just this extroverted way that I've got to be able to go out and preach, or I've got to be able to go out and, and just you know, cold turkey, knock on somebody's door, and all of a sudden engage this stranger with the most important thing in their life. I mean, it's really like, imagine knocking on somebody's door, and a, and a woman walks up, if you're a man, and you're like, will you marry me? What in the world? Or, a, or you're a girl, and you walk up, and a boy walks out, will you marry me? Like, we, no relationship, no context, no commitment to this relationship, it's just... We, we, we have this vision, and because we have this vision of sharing the gospel as being like, uh, what, what was I going to say? Vacuum cleaner salesmen. Do those even exist anymore? That's why I call it myself. Probably not. 
But it's almost like we treat it like encyclopedia tells them, like, this is kind of irrelevant, but I've got to do this because I feel guilty because, you know, the church has said I need to be sharing the gospel. I've got all this guilt, so let's just get this over with, you know, and I can go back and report. What we want to see today is that we are called to go, but we're all called to go as who we are and who God's created us to be as real people who've experienced the freedom that Jesus has given us, and now we're going to go to other real people and help them see what it looks like for them to experience the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus wants us to take ourselves out of this category we've written ourselves off from, being a sent people of God. As a church, we have this intentional name that's kind of odd, Matthew's Table Church. And the reason we have that is because we know the drift of churches as their timeline goes on is to lose that passion of being the sent people of God into the stuff of everyday life to simply being a, this sort of management, maintenance institution that delivers religious goods and services that tries to keep its customers happy and pay the bills. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, we see Jesus calling Matthew, one of these twelve, and he goes to his house, and they throw a party, and it's Jesus in the middle, his disciples here, and then there's all these other people who have been either written off by the people of God in that day, or probably they themselves have written off God's people. And they're allowed to be there, they're expected to be there. The party was thrown so that they could be there. And Jesus is showing them, this is how you live the kingdom of God. This is how you make disciples. This is how you go. And we do this together. At the end of Matthew 9, we find our text today that gives us the heart of our Savior so that we might live out that vision of our Savior. This call to go to set the captive free. We want to answer a few questions this morning, the best we can, in a reasonable amount of time. It's how did Jesus go? Why did Jesus go? And how did Jesus plan to keep this thing going? So the first question in verse 35 is how did Jesus go? It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, excuse me, and healing every disease and every affliction. We want to notice first, Jonathan, if you wouldn't mind just clicking back to that last slide, thank you, that Jesus went here to specific places and specific people. He walked these places. There was no place too big. There was no place too small. So in the, in the world of missions, sometimes we want to have strategic cities. But we need to realize when it comes to Jesus is that Cleveland, Tennessee is no more strategic than Nashville, Tennessee. That Cleveland, Tennessee, I believe, and maybe I'm overstepping, is no more strategic than New York City, USA. Jesus cared about all places and all people. And he went there. He didn't say, I'm just going to do the cities. He said he goes into the cities and to the villages and he walked these places. 
If you've never got out and walked much in a long time, you experience a place more differently on feet than you do in a car. We are so busy, we are so rushed, that we don't often even know where we are. And it's hard to remember who you are when you don't know where you are. It's hard to remember what you've been called to do and who you've been sent to when your life is lived in this 60 mile per hour vehicle with your music on, tuned into your own world, getting to the next place you are. So you're always going somewhere else, but you're never actually where you are. Jesus was able to live presently. Not against cars. But Jesus went to people. He went to places. He also went teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There was a declarative, there was a word aspect to what he did. So he was present in places, embedded, embodied. But he was not ashamed to open his mouth and to speak the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. Now sometimes as Christians we think that if we just like speak about what's in our hearts and what's in our lives that we're going to turn people off. But honestly, most people are smarter than you think. They, they know what you're doing. I mean, if you're a Christian, hopefully they know you're a Christian. And if you're embedded, embedding your life amongst the people, I mean, just imagine, uh, say, take for instance, our missional communities having a family meal. Hey, we'd like to invite you to this meal at our house with our friends. What are y'all doing? Oh, it's just some friends getting together. And you're like over here thinking, ooh, we're going to get them here, reel them in a little bit. And then we'll set the Jesus hook later. And they'll be like, oh no, what happened? Now we do want to be winsome. We do want to be timely. We don't want to aggressively jump on people. But like, Jesus here is just being who he is. And so where he goes places, he goes places and he talks about what he cares about. He talks about what he is about. No, it's not that he's one constant sermon. That's why we read all the Gospels. Jesus goes to weddings and hangs out and turns water into wine. He's chilling with Lazarus and Mary and Martha in their home. I mean, he's a regular guy living regular life. But when he goes places, he goes and he shares the truth. And he shares this Gospel that touches all of life. That's so important, the Gospel of the Kingdom. We've got to really keep that together because many of us maybe have grown up in a religious context where we know about the gospel, but we don't know about the gospel of the kingdom. Well, we know about a Jesus who can save us for an afterlife, but we don't know about a Jesus who has come to invade this life. Where we talk about and hope about a, an eternal state, a heaven, even, if, even one with a better theology coming down to earth where all things are made new where we experience joy and life and love to the full, but maybe yet we've read to realize that Jesus is saying, yes, that's all true, but I'm coming to have that break into the now. It's not going to be perfect till the not yet, but I come to bring a good news that guess what? You can know you're forgiven. Not just later, one day waiting to hear God tell me that, like right now, today, I can know I am fully forgiven. 
that you're waiting for this big party to come one day where people sit around and laugh and love and, and drink and eat and enjoy one another. And Jesus is saying, guess what? Yeah, that's coming. But good news, I'm creating a people who I want to taste that now. One day a world is coming where all things are made new, where there's no longer any pain, there's no longer any hate, there's no longer any unresolved, unforgiven bitterness that just plagues your life. And, and into a world we can go out and say, hey, Jesus has brought that. It's not going to be perfect until the not yet comes. But even now you can know in Jesus the one who says, I'm come that you would know life to the full. This is why so many of us think, well, there's really no gospel to share because everybody's already prayed a prayer and signed up for their eternal hell insurance plan. And Jesus is saying, what are you talking about? It's not not the gospel it's the gospel of the kingdom this is why there's so much labor to be done and, and Jesus went healing and delivering that is he went on this mission that not only declared the good news but displayed and demonstrated the good news it was a, a message of proclamation that called for repentance but it was also a ministry of power that brought healing and deliverance now it says here that he healed every disease and affliction. This doesn't mean that he healed, healed everyone's disease and affliction. I mean, if we read through this book, we see that there, there are many people whom Jesus will go to the next town. But that the presence of the kingdom now does not mean that we are now living in the presence of the kingdom later. But we do sell ourselves short when we don't believe that even now the power of God can break into this world and answer our prayers deliver people from the evil one. You see, a captive freeing mission isn't just a study, it's a kingdom invasion of place, proclamation, and power. When the tornadoes came through this area in 2011, our house was hit and we were out of it for seven months and that was amazing to see that sort of awesome devastation, if that makes any sense. But another thing that I'll still remember is if you went uh, down 64 like you're going to the Okoe and you looked up to the left, it looked like someone had taken this giant lawnmower and like mowed through a forest. It was like this happened in like 30 seconds. I mean, it was amazing. Like if you've never experienced a tornado, it is intense and you cannot deny that it happens. I thought Jesus not with that sort of, in, you know, just blowing through town. Like this is kind of what it looked like when he and his disciples showed up. Is, is there were signs. There were, there were things that you could see. It's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's saying the Spirit blows where it will. But when God's Spirit blows through a place and through a people, you're going to be able to see it. 
It shows itself in different ways. Sometimes it shows itself just in a, a perseverance through a long-term struggle where God's Spirit gives you that supernatural will to just not quit. And those of you that we've seen in our church walk through such difficult seasons like that, just so you know, we, we look on and we say, wow, presence of God in that situation, it makes no sense why they wouldn't just give up and quit on life. For other people, it's joy. It's a zeal. It's a freedom. But it's not simply a group of people who have a study that they invite other people to come join so that they can argue over doctrine. If you weren't here last week, we talked a lot about the importance of digging deep in the Word. So don't hear me not saying that. But we're saying when people really experience the truth of God's glory and grace, it's designed to overflow and bring about transformation beyond ourselves, even in ourselves. It's the only way that happens is when we go like Jesus. We embody ourselves and embed ourselves with other people. We're willing to speak the truth that we know and we're willing to pray that God would do beyond what we can do. And that's how Jesus went. You can read through the Gospels. He went being present, really present somewhere with people, a faithful presence. He went speaking the Gospel of the Kingdom and he went praying that God would supernaturally do what only he could do. And if you've never been really on mission that takes you beyond yourself, if you go there, you'll know very quickly, wow, we're going to have to pray. God's going to have to do more than we can do. But why did Jesus do this? Well, verse 36 tells us this. So we don't just see what he did, but we see why he did it. And this is really important because many of you are saying, yeah, 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 I already know that. I need to be faithfully present with people. I need to, to speak the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And, and I need to pray that God would do above and beyond what I could do myself. You might be thinking, I already know that, but I, I just still am not being moved to do that. So we see here in verse 36 that Jesus went. Jesus went. Jesus received and lived out the call from the Father to go because he saw people, he felt people, he knew people, and he loved them. Notice at the beginning of verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds. If you want to extra study this afternoon or this week, go and study all the times that it says that Jesus saw. Jesus really saw people. You know what it's like to not be seen by someone. They're with you, and you're like, you really just don't see me. And then you also maybe know what it's like when somebody really sees you. When you can say, I feel seen right now. The good news is right now, Jesus sees you. You might be thinking, I'm totally missing you right now where you're at and saying something that's not... May it be, well, guess what? The good shepherd, the true and good pastor of the sheep, he sees you. And he saw people. People weren't just bodies to him. 
saw people. And then he felt compassion for them. He had compassion for them. This word compassion wasn't he just felt sorry for people. He just had pity for people. But this is talking about this, this, this word behind compassion, splagna, is this deep sort of guttural response to seeing people in need. Some would say a better translation of this word is he suffered with them. Compassion is when you enter into someone else's suffering. Their situation. I was thinking about it this way. If, if I am watching TV and watching the news and I see that someone else's son wants to get shot, that's really sad. But if I walked up and saw my son get shot, we're, it's a new level. different. Jesus was able to enter that with people. Like what you're going through, I feel that like I'm going through. You're hungry, I'm feeling that like I'm hungry. You're lonely, I'm feeling that like I'm lonely. You're sad, I'm feeling that like I'm sad. Compassion. Suffer with. And then we also see here, he says, why did he feel this? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He discerned their situation. They were harassed. Another word for that is they were a troubled people who were helpless, and really another translation of that, who were cast down. So they were harassed and helpless. They were troubled and cast down. So they were, they were basically, in other words, they were enslaved. Enslaved to their own sin, enslaved to a world of suffering, enslaved to Satan, enslaved to a corrupt religious system that they were all a part of. He saw that. They they didn't have a shepherd. They had false shepherds at the time. Who didn't care about their brokenness, but just laid more heavy burdens on their back. It moved him. And he knew them. And he had hope for them. Because he knew of a good shepherd and because he was the good shepherd. A part of that Harriet Tubman depiction, that movie, she's in this meeting with a lot of high profile people in suits and, and not just powerful white men in suits, but the, the real the real impactful part of this scene was powerful freed slaves. And they're all discussing how can, how can we keep this underground railroad going? How, how, can we, how can we do this next thing when now these laws have been passed that are making it even harder, where people are getting more angry because they're losing property in their minds, which is losing finances. And they're discussing it also cautiously, so methodically. And they've, they've got, you know, I was thinking, if, it was, if I was one of them, this is when I would have been sitting there and I would have got out the whiteboard and started scribbling stuff nobody else could read. Like, what if we do this? What if we do this? And we can't do this because that's too hard. You know, we don't have enough resources. The risks are too great. And in the middle of all these guys sitting there doing their thing, I was thinking, this looks like a, a church leadership meeting that I would be leading. 
that this, this, well, I did that to myself. This bold lady steps up and says, you guys are coming at this all from the wrong direction. You forgot what it's like to actually be a slave. They cared, but they didn't have that compassion because they had distanced themselves from what it meant to actually suffer with people. So she said, you don't, you don't remember the beatings. I still remember the beatings. You don't remember the rape. I still remember the rape. You don't remember seeing yourself being divided and separated from your brothers and sisters while they're sold off to somewhere else. I still remember that. You don't still living, remember living like someone else's property and knowing that you will die with no more dignity than a piece of property, a cow or a pig as she was often called. She's like, I don't remember what that feels like. And so we're not taking no for an answer. We're not going to sit here and debate just all of these things endlessly in a way that protects us. I'll go. I'll go do it. I'll make the risk. I'll sacrifice myself. Because there are people who are literally dying enslaved. I just had to pause and I just was, have I forgotten what it means to be enslaved to sin, to death, and headed to hell? If we forget that, yeah, missions will be a project. How can I do that in spare time? This is why it can be important and very missional for followers of Jesus to learn what sometimes are called the doctrines of grace or the doctrine of salvation. It's because they remind us, oh wow, I was once in such bondage to sin, I was harassed and helpless. I had no hope in myself to get myself out of this situation. I couldn't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. God had to come after me. He had to pursue me. He had to rescue me. Jesus had to come and set me free. But the question that must be answered in line with our text today is how did Jesus come for us? How did Jesus come to us when we were enslaved? He came to us through someone else. He came through a person. And I want you to maybe think of that person or persons that God used. For many of us, it wasn't some dynamic visionary, spiritual architect, author. For many of us, it might have been mama. For others of us, it might have been just a, a, a kind person, a roommate, a friend, a co-worker. In Romans 10, 13 through 17, we hear these words, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that good news? 
But Paul goes on, How then will we call on him in whom they have believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Not, not what I'm doing, without someone proclaiming the truth. And how are they to proclaim that truth unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So I believe what the Spirit would ask us this morning is, do, do you see? Who, who are you not seeing in your life? in your home, in your dorm, in your hallway, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, your missional community's common mission. Maybe you show up even to family meal, and you're, you're just showing up and surviving something. Like, God's wanting you to see people. Who do you see? Images of God all around us. Do you feel... Some of us are afraid to see because we don't want to feel. We don't know what to do with our feelings. Jesus got angry. Jesus felt sad, betrayed, alone, afraid. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to allow yourself to feel those feelings if you're going to see this world as Jesus says. Because it's seeing and then feeling with that compassion. Now I see it, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling what it must feel like. And now you can know people. You can know what harassed and helpless looks like for them. You can listen to someone's story, not as a robot doing missions, but as a person with another person who are in need of a shepherd. And the hope that Jesus gives us is we know that shepherd. When you look at people and you see problems and issues, and maybe that person you look at is in the mirror, do you think they're, what do you, how do you feel in that phrase? They're a sheep without a blank. Because I guarantee a lot of us fill that blank in differently than shepherd. When I look in the mirror, I'm a sheep without a what? And I'll fill that blank in with something other than a shepherd. But when we have the eyes of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, and the hope of Jesus, then we know that how, whatever other needs that people need to have met, that ultimately it is through a relationship with this shepherd who can lead, guide, and protect that is the hope. And so our text ends with this, this prayer we wrap things up. Verse 37. Verse 37 says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and to send out laborers into his harvest. Just a few comments here and a brief connection to those verses in chapter 10. This is what's amazing is Jesus doesn't say, All right, I see this problem. I'm going to just go fix it myself. Y'all stand back. Y'all are just going to mess this up. 
and let me handle this. I would have totally understood if Jesus did that. If Jesus, even looking at my life as it presently is, I would, I would perfectly understand if he said, I need you to shut up and get out of the way. But he didn't. Jesus invites us into his mission by inviting us into his own prayer life. Isn't it amazing that Jesus prayed that someone would be sent to you with the gospel? He loves you that much. He says he's continually interceding for us now before the Father. Jesus prays for you. He's inviting you into this with him, and he's saying, we, we've got to pray for laborers. This harvest is great. There's needs. There's people all around us. And I need laborers. I'm, I'm not saying pray for greater church attendance. No, I'm not praying for attenders, I'm praying for laborers. I'm not praying for mere learners, I'm praying for laborers, for workers in the harvest. He wants us to pray that way. Jesus sees great potential in you. Because as we see in chapter 10... They are the answer to the prayer. They are the first answer. He says, pray for laborers to go into the harvest. In chapter 10, Jesus sends them into the harvest. He puts them together to do this, this gospel of the kingdom mission in community. He enables them by the Spirit to do what He did. And they're all so different. Putting a tax collector with a zealot, that's not a good plan. Tax collectors, conspirators, traitors with Rome, zealots, a first century terrorist wanting to blow up anything that represented. Literally, Simon the zealot would have been the guy, if he would have had a bomb, to go and put that bomb under Matthew's tax collector booth and sit back and watch it explode and cause disruption and chaos within the Roman government. And Jesus says, I'm going to call those guys together and send them out on mission. Because that in and of itself is an apologetic, a demonstration of the power of the gospel. And that what can happen in this harvest as we look out and we see a, a culture where so many people seem to be so divided and so separated and so individualized that Jesus is still in the business bringing people together and getting them outside of themselves and sending them out to bring the good news to the world. We've got to stir up this passion. We've got to pray. Every great harvest in the history of the world happens on the back of God's people praying out of an embodied and embedded presence and passion and partnership see God's kingdom manifested in this world. I'm going to give you one quick way. I've got a bunch. It's way out of time. If you have a phone, I would, you can get it out now if you want to. If you have a timer, you could set a timer for 9.35.
either a.m. or p.m. You don't have to do it now, so I'm not like sitting back going to wait and judge. And this is what you can do every day at 9.35 a.m. and p.m. or one or the other. From 9.35 to 9.38, just like our text, is you can pray minute one. Help me to see what you see. Minute two, help me to feel what you feel. Minute three, help me to love other people like you love. And even if you don't go with that, 9.35, I'm just going to stop and pray for more laborers to enter the harvest. And I'm going to pray that I would be the answer to that prayer first. As a church, we want to be more dedicated and devoted to creating more opportunities and more resources and more equipping for this. Because we are not playing games or having some sort of project or stuff to report. Because we live in a world full of harassed and helpless people of whom we are ourselves, at least I am, who need to experience and know the gospel for the first time and many who need to know it for the thousandth time. Father, we ask you now to help us. We know you've given us the mind of Christ. May we embrace it. If we come to the table now, may we be reminded of the lengths that he went through his life, death, and resurrection. The work, the labor he put in so that we could be the harvest. In Jesus' name we pray.